dialogue and discourse. In John 3, the dialogue and discourse between Jesus and Nicodemus. John 4, the dialogue and discourse between Jesus and the woman at the well. John 5, it's Jesus' discourse with the crowd after the feeding of the 5,000. And then in John 8, the discourse between Jesus and the Pharisees. So what we have here in John chapter 3, 1 through 21, is a discourse between, or a dialogue which becomes a discourse between Jesus and Nicodemus. In John 3, verses 1 through 8, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about the necessity of the new birth. This is what Pastor Tony preached on last Sunday. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. That is a very powerful statement that ought to cause you to rise up and say, wait a minute, have I really been born again? Because Jesus says, unless you've been born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus doesn't get it. He doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is speaking on a spiritual level. Nicodemus is thinking in a physical term. How can a man who is old be born again? How can I enter my mother's womb a second term? Jesus is speaking about spiritual truth. Nicodemus is on a physical level. They're not connecting. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the natural man receives not the things of the spirit for their spiritually discern. So Jesus doesn't just drop the conversation. He continues, and he tells Nicodemus of an account in the Old Testament that's found in Numbers 21. You remember, the Lord has delivered his people from Egypt out of bondage, out of slavery, 400 years in bondage in Egypt, and God has graciously delivered his people, and they're in the wilderness, and they're starting to grumble and gripe and complain. And here's what Numbers 21 says. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. We're getting sick and tired of this manna. They're griping and grumbling and complaining against God. And then the Lord judges his people and he sends fiery serpents into the camp. And they bite the people, and many children of Israel die. So God's response to their griping and grumbling and complaining was to send vipers, an infestation of snakes. This is like something from Indiana, Doom, uh, Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. Just lots of snakes. And they bit the people, and their poison is described as burning, a burning sensation, fiery serpents. And many of them died. And then the people came to Moses and said, you know, we made some bad choices. No, that ain't what they said. They said, we have sinned against you and against the Lord. Please pray to the Lord that he would take away these serpents from us. And the Lord says, tell you what I'll do. Moses, I want you to make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and everybody that looks upon that bronze serpent will live. God provided a remedy for those who are bitten by a poisonous snake. And what Jesus is doing here, he's trying to get Nicodemus to see that just as Moses lifted up that bronze serpent and those who looked upon it lived, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to deal with the problem of sin. Man has a poison, and it's called sin, and I'm the remedy. 
And so then Jesus goes on to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, why doesn't he just stop? Isn't that a good place to just stop right there? Why does he go on and utter the words in John 3, 17 through 21? My argument this morning is that verses 17 through 21, Jesus is clarifying John 3, 16. Because he knows we are so prone to misunderstand scriptures and we're so prone to misunderstand the gospel that in verses 17 to 21, Jesus is clarifying what he means by John 3.16. Now, like many of you, uh, I've really enjoyed the teaching of Dave DeHaan in our Sunday morning Bible study. For those of you who are not able to come to our Sunday morning Bible study, Dave began lesson number one, and he drew a line on the whiteboard, and he said that line represents the Word of God. And as preachers and teachers and followers of Jesus Christ, we are to stay on the line. We're not to go above the line or below the line. We're not to add to the scriptures or subtract from the scriptures. But we're to stay on the line. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were always adding to the word of God. They were always adding their rules and regulations to the word of God. God said, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh you shall rest. And the Pharisees came along and said, well, what exactly does that mean? How can we define work? And so they began to say, well, how many steps can you take on the Sabbath day before it comes work? How far can you travel? They said, it's probably not a good idea for a woman to look in the mirror on the Sabbath day because she might see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out, and that would be work. And so they began to add rules and regulations to the word of God. They were adding to scriptures. Then you had the Sadducees, who were always subtracting from the word of God, making the word of God say less than it really does. The Sadducees did not believe in angels or demons or the resurrection. And Jesus corrects them. He says, you are wrong. Have you not read that God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He's the God of the living, not the dead. And they say, oh, that's a good point. So we always have this danger of adding or subtracting from the word of God, and we are to stay on the line. We are not to add to it or subtract it. We're not to go above it or below it. Preacher friend of mine, Brother Conrad Murrow, put it this way. He said, truth is always on a razor's edge. Not only is scripture a line, but it's a very narrow line. Truth is always on a razor's edge. And what Jesus is doing here in John 3, 17 through 21, he is clarifying the line. He has just made this grand and glorious statement in John 3, 16. Why does he go on? Because he knows we're prone to misunderstand the scriptures. We're prone to misunderstand the gospel. So then he goes on in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That is a beautiful verse. I don't know if I've ever seen it. We always look at John 3.16, but have you ever looked at John 3.17? That is a wonderful verse. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Nicodemus, I've come on a rescue mission to save fallen mankind, those who are poisoned by sin. And so Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. And what he is doing here, he is correcting a false view that Nicodemus had about God. The Pharisees thought that the main function of the Messiah was to come and judge and condemn the world. The Messiah would come, he would liberate the Jewish nation, and he would judge the Gentiles. And so this had to be an absolute shock for Nicodemus when he said, no, no, for God so loved the world. God has a love for all of mankind, not just the Jewish nation, but even the Gentiles are included. No, no, Nicodemus, I've come into this world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And there are many people today who think of God in a false way like Nicodemus. Their one idea of God is he's some kind of a horrible monster up there in heaven whose main objective in life is to make our lives miserable. He's this evil tyrant who's reigning over us, and he just wants to make our lives miserable. I read a man this week made this statement. God is there to repress us until we have a nervous breakdown. That's some people's views of God. Nicodemus had this view that God is going to come and condemn this world. And he says, no, no, you got a false idea about God. For God so loved the world, Nicodemus, that he gave his only begotten son. Ezekiel 33, 11, and Ezekiel 18, 23, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. I've sent my son into this world to save the world, not to condemn the world. You've got a false view of God, Nicodemus. You're not on the line. Do you remember the account when the Lord came down and he spoke to Abraham? And he said, uh, we're going to go down and check out Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm going to bring judgment upon that evil city. And Abraham said, uh... Lord, I, I know I'm just dirt, but could I just ask you one thing? If there's 50 righteous there, will you spare the city? And the Lord said, if there's 50 righteous, I'll spare the city. Abraham says, now, Lord, I know I shouldn't say this. I know you're the Lord, but what if, what if we're 10 short? You're not going to destroy it if we're just 10 short. And the Lord says, no, if there's 40 righteous, I'll spare it. Lord, I, I know this is pushing it, but... What if there's 20? If there's 20, I'll spare it. Lord, what if there's 10? Lord, I, I, know, I've, I know I'm at the edge and I'm pushing the envelope here, but what, what if there's just five? Yeah, if there's five righteous, I'll spare the city. That's the kind of God he is. Gracious and kind, patient and long-suffering. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So Jesus is correcting his false view of God. He's holding us to the line. But unfortunately, that's not the only misunderstanding about God. There's another, and it's the exact opposite. You convince people that God is not this horrible creature who just wants our lives to be miserable, and you tell them that the God of the Bible is a God of love, and they swing to the other pendulum. And they say, oh, yeah. I see it now. God is a God of love, and therefore we have nothing to worry about. We don't need to sweat this. God is a God of love, and in the end, everybody's going to be all right. 
Yeah, now I see it. God is love. And it's because he knew that we're prone to misunderstand the gospel that he adds verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. This is still part of the argument that he's making from verse 16. What he is doing, he is clarifying his teaching. He's defining the line. Nothing is so dangerous as to just isolate John 3.16 on its own. You have to look at it in its context. Our Lord is not teaching here universal salvation. You're familiar with the teaching. They say God is love. Well, obviously, if God is a loving God, a loving God's not going to put people in hell for all eternity. No, he's a, he's a loving God. We don't need to sweat this. In the end, he is a benevolent father, and he's going to love us and care for us. And uh, it really doesn't matter how you live. Uh, in the end, God's love will just cover it all, and we'll all be saved, and nobody will perish. It's called universalism. The, brother, uh, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. God is the father of all, and we're all children of God, and we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And in the end, God is just going to love everybody, and nobody will perish. Jesus is not teaching that. Now, that's the theology of most people in America today is universalism. Everybody that dies goes to heaven. The guy can be the most mean, honorary man, never stepped foot in a church, and when he dies, everybody at the funeral says, well, you know, he's up there in heaven with God, and, you know, he loved to fish, or he's probably fishing in some beautiful bass lake up in heaven. Like, really? But that's American theology. Everybody that dies goes to heaven. Universalism. They've never gone to a place of worship. They've never studied the Bible for themselves. They're just resting on, you know, I've heard God is love and God will forgive us and we don't need to panic. We need, don't need to worry about this. God's love is just going to cover it all for us. And so Jesus, knowing that, says, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. There's two whoever's. Whoever believes is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Or if you have the old King James, it says, he that believes in him is not condemned. He that does not believe is condemned already. Jesus is making a separation here. He's classifying us in two categories. There are those who believe and those who do not believe. He's talking about the sheep and the goats. There's only two kinds of people, those who follow Christ and those who do not follow Christ. Your sheep or your goats. You're those who believe or those who do not believe. And so he is shooting down this idea of universalism, lest we misunderstand John 3.16. Oh, it was in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But we don't see it. We just skim over it. Oh, yeah, you know, God is love. Everybody's going to be all right in the end. But that's not what Jesus said. So knowing that, being a good teacher, he goes back to clarify it. That's why he adds verse 18. All right. Now we're ready to dig into verse 19 and focus our attention on verse 19. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
If I was to ask you, why are you here this morning? Why do you go to church? I believe you're here this morning at this moment because you're looking for light. Something is wrong. Something is eating at you. You're not satisfied. You're spiritually hungry. You're spiritually thirsty. You're looking for light. You're looking for truth. You're looking for understanding. That's why we've gathered here this morning. We want truth and light for how to live into this world. And Jesus says, light has come into this world. God has given us light. God has given us his word, the Bible. This is light from God to a fallen mankind. There's no other book like the Bible. It is unique. It stands alone. It and it alone is the word of God. And every time you open up the Bible, you're coming into the presence of the living God. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word is a light. Light has come into this world, Nicodemus. God has given us his word. We read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is giving us light. He is giving us truth. He is giving us understanding. This world is not an accident. This world did not come, come into existence by blind, random chance. No, no. This world came into existence because God created this world. He has a plan and a purpose for this world. And it is a very powerful truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is God's world. As I've said so many times, we live in God's world. We walk on God's earth. We breathe God's air. We eat God's food. We drink God's water. We enjoy God's mountains. We enjoy God's oceans. It's all his. The cattle on a thousand hill, he says, are mine. All the gold, all the silver, it's mine. This is God's world. And you and I might take that for granted. If you were raised in a Christian home and raised in the church, you've heard all your life, God created the heavens and earth. But my wife doesn't take that for granted. Because she was raised in Cambodia, a Buddhist country, in a Buddhist family. And there is no creation account in Buddhism. They have no idea where the world came from. And as a little girl growing up along the Mekong River in the providence of Gondal, Paul says, as a little girl, I would wonder, who made the stars? Who made the, the sun? Who made the, the moon? Who made the mango trees and the banana trees? Who made me? Where did I come from? Even as a little girl, she said, I know I come from my mom and dad. My mom and dad come from my grandparents. And she reasoned as a little girl, there had to be two at the beginning. It was not until her family fled the war and escaped from Cambodia and made it to a refugee camp, that she got a Bible for the first time and began to read the Bible. And she said, I cannot tell you how excited I was to read the Bible for the first time and read the Genesis account that God created the heavens and the earth. She said, here was a book that had all the answers to my questions. Here's a book that has our answers to our questions. Jesus saying, Nicodemus, light has come into this world. What is the light that we so desperately need? Is it not the knowledge of God? Don't we need light about God? The Bible gives us light about God. Is there a God? Is there a God behind this world or is there not? And if there is a God behind this world, what kind of God is he? Is he a good God or a bad God? Is he mean? Is he cruel? The Bible reveals to us who God is. 
The Bible gives us light on God, that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the one who formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathed in his nostrils and became a living being. And Job says, naked I came into this world and naked I'll leave. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. He is the one that gives life and he's the one that takes life. He's eternal. Psalm 92, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's an eternal God. He and he alone is God. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. There are not two gods. There are not three gods. There's not four gods. There's not a hundred gods like Hinduism teaches. He says there's only one God. And if your God is not the God of the Bible, you have no God. He says, I am the Lord. There is no other. He's holy. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And what did the angels cry out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. John says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. The unimaginable, unapproachable holiness and purity of God. Is he a kind God, a compassionate God? Exodus 34, 6, Moses said, I want to see your glory. And the Lord says, you cannot see my face, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and you can see my backside. And the Lord passes by Moses, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We receive light about God in Scripture. And if you really want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. You remember when Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father. And the Lord says, Philip, have I been with you all this time and you don't understand? If you've seen me, you've seen God. I and the Father are one. If you want to understand what God is like, read the Gospels, because Jesus is God in the flesh. What is God like? He's like Jesus. Read the Gospels. The Bible gives us light on the meaning and purpose for life. So many young people today are struggling with why am I here? What's the meaning? What's the purpose of life? Was it Marie Antoinette who said, nothing tastes. Life is a bad joke. William Shakespeare put it this way. Life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's what Shakespeare said. Oh, there's man, he's just making a lot of dust, but it signifies nothing. It's a tale told by an idiot. Just look at our world history with wars and men slaughtering each other. What in the world's going on in this world? And so people struggle with the meaning and purpose of life. I remember when uh, I was reading in the Chicago Tribune, that John Belushi was found dead with an apparent drug overdose in his apartment. John Belushi grew up in Wheaton, graduated from Wheaton Central High School. They were our rival school in high school, West Chicago and Wheaton Central. We didn't like each other when it came to football games. Had some fights. So we kind of followed John Belushi in his career. This local boy from Wheaton makes it all the way to Saturday Night Live and then to Hollywood and starts producing all of these movies. 
And I read in that article in the Chicago Tribune that at the height of all of his popularity and fame, he said, is this all there is? Is this all there is? I've climbed all the way to the top of Hollywood, and it's empty. And he's found dead of apparent drug overdose in his apartment. Was it the French philosopher Sartre who said, the ultimate question of philosophy is suicide? In other words, give me a reason for living. What's the meaning? What's the purpose of life? What did Augustine say? Lord, you have made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. We were made for God. In Isaiah 43, 7, he says, I created you for my glory. You are here on this earth to glorify and honor God, and that life and joy and peace is found in relationship with the living God. God has given us light on the meaning and purpose of life, that we're here to honor him and glorify him. What about the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments is light given to us on how we are to live in this world. We're to love the Lord thy God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. What about commandment number four? What is it that really pleases the Lord? What makes the Lord smile? Commandment number four, honor your father and your mother. Because when you do that, the Lord says, I'm pleased with that. I like that. I like it when you go down to the nursing home and you honor your father and mother, even though they don't even know who you are anymore, but you're there loving them and caring for them. And God says, I like that. That pleases me. There's meaning and value in that. If there is no God behind this world, then it means nothing. And then what does Paul go on to say in Ephesians? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You know what really pleases the Lord? is when husbands love their wives, adore them, cherish them, treasure them, make much of them, honor them, respect them. God looks at that and says, I like that. I cringe sometimes when I hear men putting down their wives, kind of the Archie Bunker, all-in-the-family type of guy, always putting down Edith. God says, no, don't do that. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And wives, honor and respect your husbands. Don't embarrass him. Don't belittle him. Don't put him down. Don't show everybody his faults. Cover those. Love him and honor him and respect him. That's what really pleases me. I was in chapel in college, and we had Peter Lord. In my day, Peter Lord was like having Matt Chandler come to your campus, and he spoke at chapel. And I remember he said this. I don't remember all the context, but he said one time he was out in the front yard, just playing catch with his 10-year-old boy. They had their baseball gloves on and playing catch. And he said it was like the heavens opened and God was looking down and said, I like that. That pleases me. God has given us light. He's given us his word. He's given us his commandments on how we're to live. What else do we need? Light. We need light on how to die. Death is real. It's there, it's coming, we cannot avoid it, we cannot uh, escape it. 
Every single one of us is marching to the grave. We're all going to take turns and we're going to die one day. Death is a reality. The Spurgeon said it's probably the greatest reality that the world totally ignores. We want to totally forget about death and just push it aside and never confront it. The Bible continually wants us to confront death, that life is a vapor. You're only going to be here a short time. So teach us to number our days, Lord. God continually tells us you're going to die. But the world doesn't want you to think about it. It does everything it can to camouflage death, right? You go to a funeral and you got a beautiful casket. What do you do? Let's bring in lots of pretty flowers. Let's make this look really pretty. And let's put the guy in a suit and let's put some makeup on him. And then we'll say, doesn't he look good? No, he don't. He's dead. That's a reality. It's real and it's coming. What light do you have when it comes to death? What do you know about dying? Is death the end? Or is there life on the other side of the grave? The world doesn't know. The world has no light to give us. Going back to Shakespeare, his commentary on death was, the undiscovered country from whom born no traveler returns. We don't know anything about death. It's this undiscovered country, and everybody that travels there never comes back to tell us what it's like. We don't know anything about it. The world doesn't know anything about death. Only the Bible gives us light about death, and it comes through the teaching of Jesus. What did Jesus say in John 14, 1? Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. He's given us light. Hey, I don't want my followers agitated. That's where that word comes from, troubled, like a, like a washing machine, that agitation. No, 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 I don't want my followers, my people should not ever be agitated, troubled by this world, just wringing their hands. No, 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 no. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And what about the account of Lazarus and the rich man? Jesus has given us light. We go on. The the man Lazarus was dirt poor. He was a beggar. The dogs would come and lick his wounds. And when he died, he goes to Abraham's bosom and he is comforted. And the rich man who enjoyed great wealth and, and clothed in robes of, uh, of uh, satin and purple, he's in Hades in misery. The Lord's telling us this world's not all there is. Fear not those who can kill the body, but rather fear him who after he's killed the body can put the, the body and the soul in hell. Yes, fear him. He's given us light on death on the other side. Jesus even teaches us how to die. How did Jesus die? What did he utter from the cross? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's how I want to die. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you remember the words, or have you ever heard of the words that William Carey, that great Christian missionary, put on his tombstone? His epitaph reads this, A wretched, poor, helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. That's all I got. I'm just a poor, wretched worm, on your kind arms 
I fall. You are my only hope, Lord. Tim Wills was a pastor at Calvary for 25 years. He was pastor in his third church before he ever had assurance of his salvation. He was pastor in his third church, and one day he was so miserable, he called his wife and said, pray for me. Then he called his brother Burton and said, pray for me. He went to the church, he went into the office, and he fell face down in the shag carpet, and he cried out to God and said, God, you can send me to hell if you want me to, because that's exactly what I deserve, but I'm going to go trusting in Jesus. And he said from that moment on, he had peace and assurance. And that's the way I want to die, is, Lord, I have nothing to offer you can send me to hell if you want to, but I'm going to go trust in Jesus because he's all I got. He's all I got. Thought about the day when my dad was dying. COVID, I couldn't see him. Sorry, shouldn't go there. But there was a song, a country and western song that, that my dad would often quote the words to. And I don't even know this song, but he said, you don't have to be afraid of the dark if you've been washed in the blood. I don't know about anything about that song other than those words. I thought, I wonder if Dad was thinking about that. The last words he said to the chaplain was, today I'll see Jesus. Today I'll see Jesus. God gives us light on death and how to die. And not only that, he tells us that after death comes a judgment it is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. Every single one of us are going to stand and give an account of, of our lives before God. Jesus has given us light on that. And what about light about man? Who are we? Where did we come from? What is man? Is he an animal? No, he's not an animal. He's been created in the image of God. Every human being, every man, woman, and child has honor and respect because they're created in the image of God. Then what's wrong with man? Do you understand man? Does psychology really answer the question about man? There are 265 schools of psychology. Everybody knows that man is screwed up. They just don't know what caused him to be so screwed up. Does psychology really answer the question about what's wrong with man? No. Only the scriptures really answer the question. The problem with man is that he is a sinner. He has an evil heart that is governed by sin. And what did Jesus say here in John 3, 19? And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Nicodemus, the reason people are not believing the gospel is because their hearts are evil and they love the darkness. Jesus said in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Man is a slave to sin. He is governed and controlled by sin. Well, you know, I got free will. No, you have no free will. You're either a bondservant of Jesus Christ or you're a slave of sin. That's what Scripture teaches. And so you ask the question, what about man? He says, the problem, Nicodemus, here is man has a wicked, sinful heart. The problem, Nicodemus, is not light. Light has come into the world. The problem is men are spiritually dead, and a spiritually dead man can't see the light. So I think that what Jesus is doing here, he's come full circle around back to the doctrine that you need to be born again. Has it ever baffled you? Why would anybody in their right mind turn down the gospel? 
Whoever believes in the Son will have eternal life. He who does not believe in the Son will be condemned and perish. Why would any reasonable, sane person turn down such a gospel, such an offer? You're invited to a wedding feast to celebrate, and man says, no, I'm not interested in going to the wedding feast. I really don't care about any of this. Jesus is answering the question, why is it that our churches are empty? Why is it that our churches are not full? Why are not hundreds and thousands of people embracing the gospel? It's because there's something wrong with their heart. They love their sin. How are you going to get somebody who loves darkness to hate darkness? That's what he's driving home to Nicodemus. Ezekiel 36, 26, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will place my laws within you and cause you to walk in obedience. It is God who causes the new birth. Nicodemus, the problem's not light. Light has come. The problem is the heart of man. He needs to be born again. That's what Jesus is saying. We need life, not just light. Let's close in a word of prayer at this time.